This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Get $50 off select mattresses by visiting casper.com galaxy and using the promo code galaxy at checkout. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 333 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new Netflix original series, The Haunting of Hill House, based on the novel by Shirley Jackson. And this will involve spoilers for the entire first season, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Paul Tremblay, who you may remember from our panel on Scary Families and Horror back in episode 317, and our panel on Demonic Possession back in episode 203. His novels include A Head Full of Ghosts, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, and The Cabin at the End of the World. A Head Full of Ghosts has been optioned by Focus Features, and Stephen King writes that The Cabin at the End of the World is, quote, thought-provoking and terrifying and Tremblay's personal best. It's that good. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. I'm very glad to be back. The next up, we've got Leah Schnellbach, who you may remember from our panel on Annihilation back in episode 298, and it's our panel on Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency back in episode 281. She's a staff writer for Tor.com, and a fiction editor of the No Tokens Journal, and her fiction appears in journals such as Joyland, Volume 1 Brooklyn, and Madcap Review. And you should all go check out her Tor.com review, Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House Finds the Beating Heart of Shirley Jackson's Tale. So, Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be back. And also joining us today is Seth Dickinson, making his sixth appearance on the show. His short story, Three Bodies at Matani, appeared in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2016. And his first novel, The Traitor Brew Cormorant, has appeared on countless Best of 2015 reading lists. A sequel entitled The Monster Brew Cormorant is out now. So Seth, welcome to the show. Great to be here. And today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just head on over to casper.com slash galaxy and order today. The mattress industry is famous for forcing consumers to pay high markups, but Casper cuts out the cost of resellers and showrooms and passes that savings directly on to the consumer. Casper's mattresses are designed by humans for humans. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Casper mattresses are so comfortable it'll make other mattresses feel like you're lying on a silver table with your jaw wired shut. Your Casper mattress will be shipped to you in a small box, and all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. So just head on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. You have 100 days to try out the mattress, and if you decide not to keep it, Casper will give you a full refund. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Terms and conditions apply. And remember that you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com galaxy and using the promo code galaxy at checkout. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Okay, so let's start off with Paul. And so, Paul, just tell us about heading into this, uh, The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. What were your expectations, and were they influenced at all by the fact that it's uh, based on the Shirley Jackson novel or that it's directed by Mike Flanagan? Yeah, I, I, uh, I had expectations on both. Um, I'm definitely a fan of Mike Flanagan's work. Um, but, I mean, Shirley Jackson, I mean, no shades to Mike Flanagan at all because, you know, he's an amazing filmmaker. But to me, it was a big deal because it was Shirley Jackson. Uh, I mean, she's a formative writer for me. Uh, you know, and I wear my sort of Jackson influence on my sleeve in my novel, A Head Full of Ghosts. So I was excited, but I have to admit also a little bit, uh, uh, trepidatious 
just to, you know, here, you know, how are they going to take, you know, this novel, the really the iconic haunted house novel of the, of the 20th century and turn it into a 10, uh, 10 episode series, um, which I'm sure we'll all discuss. But I think the first decision that Flanagan made to not just remake, just remake it, uh, you know, as the book is and actually essentially reimagine it, I think was really the, the smartest and really borderline genius thing that he did with the show. Could you say how it's a formative work for you? I mean, do you remember when you first read it or? Oh, sure. I have actually sitting next to me on the desk the copy that I stole from a library. <laughs> uh, well, stole is an ugly word. Let's just say I, I took it out and never brought Liberated. it Liberated. I suppose I, I could still bring it back one day. Um, no, I mean, I mean, Stephen King was you know, obviously my intro into horror, but, you know, shortly after reading Stephen King, I read Shirley Jackson. Um, and, you know, The Haunting of Hill House I've read many times. I actually reread it. Was it, uh, I reread, it. I think I heard about the show in like April of 2017. So I, I reread the novel one more time just to, to sort of put my head in that, in that space. But, um, you know, some of Shirley's other works, like, you know, We Will Always Live in the Castle is one of my favorite, or We Have Always Lived in the Castle, excuse me, is one of my favorite novels. And, you know, I named my protagonist in the Head Full of Ghosts, Mary, after Maricat Blackwood. So yeah. And, you know, I helped found, I'm one of the co-founders, you know, myself and four other people of the Shirley Jackson Awards, which have been going for 10 years now. So, yeah, I guess you could say I'm sort of a Jackson geek. <laughs> was rereading it recently? Did you did you was it different than you remembered at all? Um, I'm always it's fine. Whenever I reread it, I always forget how funny it is. Um, I mean, it's a super scary novel. I never forget that part of it. But uh, the the humor is always surprising to me. It, and I think that's true for all of Shirley Jackson's novels because it is just so funny and, and yet never tone breaking and never out of place. Uh, you know, cause in the novel, this never happens in the show, but, uh, in the novel, uh, the Dr. Marnie wife shows up with this random headmaster guy, like a, who's a friend of hers and just, they just show up and make a mess of everything. And it's just really, really funny. Hmm. Uh, how about Leah? What were your expectations going into the show? Well, I think I had some of the same fears that I was trying to figure out how you could possibly adapt this into a full series um, rather than just a film, um, especially given that I like the original, the Robert Wise adaptation um, of The Haunting. Um, but then I've also seen the 1999 Haunting, which was kind of a travesty. Um, so thinking about that, I was kind of worried that they were going to go in that direction and make it too CGI heavy or too gory. Um, to kind of pat it out. So the fact that they went in and sort of dug into the emotions of the story more and pulled those out across the entire series and the way that they, it seemed like Mike Flanagan was treating this very much as a riff on the original story rather than trying to adapt anything very faithfully, which personally I really like, because I always like it when people kind of go off in their own weird direction when they're going to adapt something. Um, so I was pretty astonished by the end of the first episode just how much i was loving it and then just flew through it um which i would have done even if i didn't have a deadline <laughs> like <laughs> i mean could you say that that earlier film adaptation the robert wise could you say why mm -hmm. that's a non-travesty adaptation no. um well i feel like they got that version of it gets a bit closer to the sort of gothic horror and it uses a lot more suspense and a lot more of the sort of emotional beats to just build a much more suspenseful feeling rather than um, the, the, I think it was Jan de Bont, the guy that did speed 
um, who did the 1999 version, who um, it, it just, they tried to do too many um, CGI effects and things like that. And then the acting just wasn't quite at the same level from it, from the actors in that film. So it just wasn't, it was just kind of too gaudy, if that makes any sense, um, rather than atmospheric. So. Yeah. Well, and how about Seth? Uh, expectations going into the show? Yeah, I feel kind of like the control group in that <laughs> I, I hadn't read the book and didn't know anything about it. Um, and I was really impressed with the show. I really loved it. But I wondered if you guys could actually, for people like me who haven't read the book, maybe tell me a little about how the book is different. Does it have the same split kind of it style two time frames going on? No, no, it's completely Not different. So, uh, uh, <laughs> well, essentially, uh, it's really almost like the first of its kind of a, like an investigative paranormal team sort of shows up. I mean, that makes it sound sort of cheesy, but essentially for, uh, you know, four adults show up, uh, you know, Eleanor, Theodora, uh, this Dr. Marnegue character and Luke, uh, and Luke is, he's sort of like the next in line to own the house potentially. And so the, the novel really focuses on those four as they're in the house and sort of investigating what's going on. Um, but, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about how, you know, the really amazing thing that, that Flanagan did was he took these characters and was able to, sort of imbue their spirits and their emotional lives and reimagine them into this, you know, into this family, the Crane family. In the novel, the Cranes are, are people who owned the house prior to way, yeah, you know, many years prior to the investigation. So the Cranes are really just Cranes, according to the novel, in, in sort of name only, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so in the book, uh, Theodora and Luke, et cetera, are not family members. Um, right. Uh, oh, yeah, no, they're all just brought together to investigate the house, sort of under Dr. Montague's uh, direction. Right. Um, but so, Seth, I mean, uh, are you familiar with uh, Mike Flanagan, the director? Because actually, uh, I think you recommended one of his earlier movies, Hush, to me. Yeah, I love his work. Um, and it's pretty interesting that he did such a good job with this because, well, he's great at horror. Um, Oculus and Hush were both really different from this. Oculus is kind of a, I don't know if I'd call it psychological, but the antagonist in Oculus is, it's a place, like Hill House, but it's very inhuman, just sort of this abstract malevolence. And then Hush is a slasher movie. Uh, so this, I mean, I clearly the guy was talented, but this was above and beyond what I expected, in that I came here looking for an awesome horror show, and by the end, I was really in it for the family. Uh, which is doubly impressive, because during the first episode, between the split timelines... And the size of the cast, I had no idea who anyone was. I felt really <laughs> stupid. Well, you know, you know, Seth, I haven't seen Oculus, but I just watched the trailer for it, and it kind of reminded me of of this adaptation of Haunting of Hill House a little bit in terms of these characters investigating. Uh, you know, it looks like there was a split timeline, maybe, and they were investigating the the legacy of this um the sort of haunted object that had on their lives. That is true, but. To me, what makes them different is that the mirror in Oculus is just straight up. Can we swear? Yes. The mirror in Oculus <laughs> is just plain fucking evil. Uh, whereas the house is a pretty complicated place and a very human place. That was something that at first actually disappointed me about the ending of Hill House. That, whoa, um, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's, okay. let's, let's not get to the ending. <laughs> We're going to save that for a little bit later. <laughs> Okay, good. Because <laughs> uh, there's gonna, we're gonna have a lot to say. Uh, at least I'm gonna have yeah. a lot to say about the ending, and I think probably a lot of people will. 
Yeah. Um, but just sorry, so sticking with uh, Mike Flanagan for a second, I also just want to mention, if people don't know, a couple of his other films. Uh, he did Gerald's Game, an adaptation of the Stephen King novel. Um, I mentioned Hush. He also did Ouija, Origin of Evil. Um, so I have only seen of those. I saw Gerald's Game and I saw Hush. Um, right. And uh, I don't know. So uh, anyone else, Paul, have any uh, opinions on just Mike Flanagan? Uh, yeah, his work is great. Um uh, Hush is, it's funny, my, my most recent novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, is sort of a riff on the home invasion genre, which I don't like, typically, <laughs> which is why I wrote the book. But one of the movies, recent movies, uh, home invasion movies that I do like is Hush. I think it's really well done. Um, and, you know, I haven't seen Oculus in a really long time, so my, my memory of it is pretty vague. But I, I have seen interviews with Flanagan and other people just online talking about how there are definitely Easter egg clues and connections to Oculus. Uh, with uh, the haunting of Hill House, so if people really love this show, they probably should go back and watch Oculus. Interesting. I mean, I, I really get the feeling that he is just one of the top up and coming horror directors right now. I mean, he actually is going to be doing Doctor Sleep, the uh, sequel to The Shining. Uh, right. It's going to be coming out in twenty twenty. Uh, Leah, any feelings on Mike Flanagan? I actually hadn't, I didn't know his work before this. I had heard about Oculus and Hush, but I hadn't gotten around to watching them. And I'd actually decided, because I read some of Gerald's game years ago and knew that I never wanted to try to watch a film adaptation of it. <laughs> um, so when that came out, I was like, oh, well, I'm glad because I, I liked Carla Guino. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm glad, like, it sounds like this has been a really good role for her because I just read a lot of acclaim for it, but I will never watch that. And then this happened, and now I'm sort of like, maybe I'm going to have to go back on this and try it just for them so that I can kind of be a completist. Um, and I'm also, I'm very excited about Dr. Sleep. I'm interested because anybody that wants to try to make a sequel to The Shining, um, I admire them. <laughs> so I want to I want to see what he does with it. I mean, if you're at all hesitant about watching Gerald's Game, I would not necessarily recommend it because... I, I thought it was real, I th particularly the first half. I thought it was really, really good. I had some issues with the ending, but mm. it is very difficult to watch. I mean, there was just like <laughs> a part, you know, a part where I just I could not. I had to like I was like a little kid, like just like hold like watching the movie through my fingers. It was it was brutal. Yeah. So just be okay. aware of that going in. Noted. <laughs> uh, all right, but so Seth, so since you had no sort of preconceptions going into this haunting of Hill House show. Kind of what were your uh, initial impressions of the show? You said it was kind of confusing. I was confused about the characters. I couldn't keep track of the whole cast at first. Mostly because I think you have to pair up their adult selves with uh, their childhood, you know, kind of counterparts. Um, and I didn't know anything going in. Uh, so once you're clear that there's a split timeline, you start to figure it out. Uh, but what I was really impressed by was the first episode is really the pitch for the series. It gives you the core event of Nell going to the place. Um, but it's really, really hard to follow. At least it was for me. Uh, but once I started hitting the character-centric episodes, everybody really popped. And I, I was never confused about who anyone was after their episode. Uh, so what really grabbed me from the beginning was that the direction was really good. The photography. I find a lot of the Netflix shows kind of tend to look the same. If you watch their, uh, I don't know, it's kind of their made-for-TV movies like Extinction uh, or Revolt. They're all shot pretty similarly. Like, somebody had a 
manual about how to make a nice looking prestige drama and just kind of shot out of it without any understanding. Uh, but this, like all the match cuts and stuff, I thought was superb. Yeah. So the, so the first scene of this movie, right, is there is a kid and he's in bed in this big house and his dad comes and says, we need to leave the house right now. Close your eyes. And the dad sort of carries him out to the car where all the, his brothers and sisters are all in the car already. And they drive away and the kids are all screaming, where's mom? Where's mom? And he's like, don't worry about it. And they just drive off. And so that definitely grabbed my attention right away. Uh, and then, yeah, and then it gets very, pretty complicated. But we eventually piece together that there's this family called the Cranes and there's the father and mother and five kids. And they've come to this big house for the summer and they're planning on renovating it and then selling it. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so they're, yeah, like I said, there are these five kids. So how about Leah? Tell us about, tell us about some of these kids, uh, which were the <laughs> ones that kind of, uh, came clear, which ones came clear to you first? Oh, well, I'm a huge fan of Theo, but Theo didn't actually become clearer as a kid until a few episodes in, which is part Seems of why like I she's almost her. completely missing from the first episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I really liked because I love that she is, when you meet her as an adult, she's a very aloof adult. Um, and I really like that they actually carried that through, that as a child, she isn't playing with the other kids. She isn't really interacting with them because she's off reading and she's off doing her own thing. And then she doesn't get her sort of um, central moment with her mom where you find out about her particular sensitivities until about, I think, halfway through the series. So I really like the sort of slow burn where you get the sense that she, even as a child, was very standoffish. And then you start to see maybe why. Um, and then you can watch it through, carry through to her as an adult. Um, I love Luke. I mean, both as a child and as an adult, I love <laughs> Luke because the little nerd boy with huge glasses, I just, he, I just wanted to hug him the entire way. <laughs> like every time I see him on screen, he is so sweet and well-meaning and he just keeps trying to tell everyone about his friend abigail and nobody wants to talk to him about her <laughs> and um it's just oh he's great and i really like how they did like I, I think i said this in the in the essay that i wrote but i for the first two episodes i assumed that he and the girl that played now were actually related because the way that they interacted was so like such perfect sibling back and forth that I I kind of assumed that they were actually brother and sister until I looked them up about like halfway through the second episode because I couldn't um I was so impressed with them as like little child actors basically of how they were relating to each other. Um yeah. And yeah, I also well, I like I like big brother Steve too. He's he does such a good job of trying to be the big brother and just failing miserably. <laughs> so Well yeah, let me just say the acting in this is is very strong throughout I thought. And uh, I thought it was interesting because I, I heard that what they did is they cast all the, the – I think they cast the adults and then they cast kids who you could kind of believe would grow into those adults. But then they had the, the – they, they had the they had sort of a boot camp where they had the adults um, just hang out with the kids. And the adult actors were supposed to match the kids' behavior. So they would look at the, you know, little, I don't know, like quirks they had or um, body language things or something and then try to imitate those, you know, rather than having the kids try to imitate the adults, have mm. the adults try to imitate the kids. So I thought that was pretty clever. Um, and, and also if you're a fan of Mike Flanagan's work, like all of these actors have all appeared in his previous movies. I mean, the, uh, the actress who plays Theodora was the main character in Hush. Um, the father was in, um, 
was was the father in the flashbacks in Gerald's game. It's just like even like um, Mrs. Dudley. I mean, all of them. If you go back through mm-hmm. his movies, you'll 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 recognize them all. So these are all people, I guess, who you know have worked together in some capacity uh, for a while now, and mm-hmm. and are all clearly you know comfortable all working together and, and do a really good job. I thought. Yeah. No. I uh, as far as the you know the child actors are concerned, uh, and, and as far as the story is concerned too, I was impressed because it's it's a hard line, especially I think in uh, film horror to like, you can be accused of just putting children in danger or like, you know, you're, you're torturing children, not literally torturing them, but sort of uh, metaphysically torturing them for your scares. Um, and that's a really hard line to walk in any form of fiction. I, I think they did it or, you know, the writers in Flanagan did it very well. And the reason why it never felt to me like it was gratuitous because all of these kids lives were given time and space to be explored um and you, you know we this we like believe Gerald's I'm sorry it's coming to life yeah. right here <laughs> yeah sorry my little dog is <laughs> excited that my wife is returning home um yeah so i mean i because you know i think that's one of the benefits of having 10 hours i mean i think there are some you know there are some hurdles to having like a, a limited series be that long too i think we may talk about but uh i think one of the benefits is you did get to give these kids their lives you, you got to believe them you got to see what they experienced so it didn't it never felt like oh we're just putting cheaply putting kids in danger um and they were all excellent actors i really liked uh the younger shirley and older shirley combo and part of it i just thought it was brilliant to have shirley as a character obviously there was no shirley in haunting of hill house but <laughs> it was a, i thought it was a nice little inversion of who shirley jackson was um you know within her own life you know because purportedly you know she and her husband uh, fought quite a bit and he, he would sort of be very overbearing to her. So I kind of like that Shirley was Shirley in the, in the, in the TV show was angry and sort of pulled the strings. Um, oh. it, you know, and I don't know, I was mostly on her side the, the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got, so you've got Shirley who is the second oldest kid, but kind of has t- always taken on the role of the oldest kid, or at least as an right. adult has, um, and runs a, a funeral home. Um, and her younger sister, Theodora, lives with her in the, in the funeral home. And then the oldest sibling, uh, is Steve. And he has kind of, uh, become, um, sort of alienated from the rest of the family because he's a writer and he wrote a sensationalized book about their experiences, the family's experiences in this house, uh, which made him a very successful writer, but, uh, put him on the outs with his family. Um, and Seth, what did you think about Steve as a writer? How did that strike you? He was a hack. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so as a writer, as a full-time writer, I, I, Steve is obviously a jerk. Uh, and we're not all like that, I think. (laughs) Uh, but Steve's life is also a lot more sexy in that, like, people care a lot about his writing and his family members all read his book. Uh, no offense to my family, they all read my book. Very grateful. <laughs> but, like, uh, there's the very basic credibility stuff of, like, you know, I could buy a house with this money. Uh, you could. Um, he, uh, he has a really interesting thing going where he takes people's ghost stories and he presents them. Uh, but he doesn't believe any of it. Um, and he seems to kind of do. The first time we meet him, he's he's basically interviewing a woman who believes that her husband is appearing to her after he died in a car crash. 
And Steve tells her it's actually a leak in the ceiling and traffic noise outside that's interrupting her dreams. Um, it seems like he wants to think he's helping her find peace, but he also sort of just undercuts her feelings um, in almost a brutal way. Uh, like, he's there to tell her that there's nothing left of her husband, she needs to move on, there are no ghosts, um, except, you know, outside people's minds. He really does come off uh, very cynical, almost parasitic, um, in in the way he takes people's stories and, you know, surely accuses him of, of basically profiting off their mother's death and their family's tragedy for blood money. And there is kind of this uncomfortable truth to that. Well, and just to be clear, so he takes people's stories about ghost sightings that he doesn't believe and adds ghosts in to make them more marketable. Uh, so, yeah, so there is something just very, very cynical and um, profit based about his uh, his writing career as it's developed. Um, I don't know. Uh, Leah, what do you think of? Do you have any thoughts? Do you agree with uh, Seth about Steve's writing career? Yes. <laughs> Um, he was, I, I think parasitic is a very good way to put it. Um, I, if you want to be generous to him, you could argue maybe that he was trying to work through the trauma of his childhood through his writing, but I don't think that's really the case. I, I do feel like he's sort of feeding, he's feeding off these people's stories, kind of like other things feed off of other things later on in the show that I'm sure we'll get into later. Oh, um, oh interesting. Oh, interesting. Oh. <laughs> Parallels. Um, but he's, I really liked, um, I, I, I liked that sort of portrait of this, this writer that is, he's trying to be, cause clearly at the very beginning, he tried to write historical fiction and he was trying to write kind of what sounded like a bit more sort of highly researched, serious, um, literary work from the sound of it. And it, since it was failing and it, it like no one was buying it. So then he sort of retreated into this like, um, sort of paranormal ghost investigation series of books that it sounds like it's sort of a melding of fiction and nonfiction. Um, and I liked the idea of that as an arc in a certain way that he sort of is still trying to, to research and be and, and look at history, but to kind of sex it up with the ghosts basically. Um, and I actually, I wanted, one of the things that I wanted from the show was a little bit more of him as a writer, um, which I know there wasn't enough time because obviously there was already a lot crammed into the show, but I sort of wanted to see his process a bit more even than we did just of how he works through writing these things and then convincing himself the entire time that he doesn't believe in any of them. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we'll I definitely, I do, I really like the idea of him as sort of a, a parasite. As a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. According to uh, Flanagan did a, a really lengthy, fairly lengthy interview with the Hollywood Re reporter. And he said initially they had talked about doing like opening each episode with some of Steve's writing, um, hmm. but they didn't think it, it worked. And they were afraid that what they were doing was giving away sort of some of the secrets or some of the, maybe explaining too much of what was happening before it happened. Um, I, I'm definitely with on team uh, Seth on this one. Um, you know, he's not a bad character, but he's probably my least favorite, least interesting. I think 
almost like the writer sort of works better as like a plot point rather than an actual character. But some of that's my own sort of my own sort of thing. Cause I find that, you know, the writer as a character trope typically doesn't work out well. Um, <laughs> you know, especially coming, you know, from where you have experience writing. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, well, I, I was so definitely Paul, much, as, as yeah. someone who's had uh, work optioned by focus features and pra- been praised by Stephen King. I mean, I imagine <laughs> your life is pretty much like Steve's life, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. They left out the part where Steve is still teaching high school. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, when you, when you mentioned that they were talking about maybe starting out the episodes with his writing, I mean, it's, it's interesting because within this fictional world, he's written a book called The Haunting of Hill House. And they quote from the book, which I, I believe are quotes from Shirley Jackson's novel, or, or mm-hmm. are they all, or some of them are? Or? Um, at least some of them are. They're mm-hmm. the one kind of more at, at the end, which again, I don't, I don't want to get, I don't want to jump oh, straight to the end. But they yeah. change some stuff. Yes, there. <laughs> so I'm assuming we'll want to talk about that. We'll get, we'll get, believe me, we'll get to that. Yeah, no, but, uh, some, but the opening quote, I believe, is is just the opening, which is probably the single greatest opening paragraph oh, in yeah. literature. Um, right. They do just directly quote the opening, um, which is just. It, it's great because just hearing it read is beautiful. I know there were, I've read a few people, which I kind of agree that were frustrated by the fact that the, that this, that the story was basically being given to a male author. Um, given how much the book sort of deals with issues of gender and things in the fifties and sixties. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting that some people seem to sort of recoil from hearing it read as though like a male writer had written that paragraph. Um, I didn't have that issue as much myself, but I was interested that other people did. No, I I could definitely see that. I I had some of that same thought myself. Um, But so Seth, why don't you get in here and tell us about, we haven't talked, tell us about um, Luke and Ellie, who are the youngest, uh, youngest siblings. Is it Ellie or Nell? I think it's Nellie. Yeah. Oh, Nellie. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Close enough. Um, well, she, is she still? Oh, sorry. Is she still named Eleanor? Though it's it's short for Eleanor, isn't it? Yeah. Like in her wedding, you say her name is Eleanor Vance, yeah, which yeah. is the name of the character in the novel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, they are very sad. Uh, they have a, a twin bond, like you often see in fiction, uh, or in real life. No offense to I've never been a twin. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how that is. Fingers uh, crossed. But one Someday. of the, <laughs> I will say this without um, spoiling the the ending. One of the best parts of the series on rewatch is seeing how things that happen in Nell's episode affect Luke and vice versa. There's a lot of creepy stuff that seems like it's mm. just uh, oh they feel weird, and then you realize it's mapped to something bad that's happened to the other twin in their episode, uh, which I thought was super cool. Uh, they also each have their own personal ghost, where uh, Nell has the bed neck lady, who's probably, by now, I think the most infamous part of the series. Um, <laughs> and Luke has this kind of hovering man who gets some really good creepy scenes and who follows him around. And it's implied, I think, basically drove him into heroin addiction because he was so haunted by this figure from the house and by what had happened there that uh, in order to escape reality, uh, started doing smack, uh, mm-hmm. which is a bad coping mechanism, I've been told. <laughs> Again, I haven't tried it. Uh, so 
the sad thing about these two characters is that nobody believes them. Uh, Luke, I think, has the first really direct, horrific encounter with one of the entities in the house. And uh, it even leads to the discovery of this, like, uh, bootleggers seller. Uh, but nobody believes him. Uh, nobody listens mm-hmm. to him. And Ellie has it even worse, because even as an adult, she's so fucked up. And in the first episode, and then in her episode, you see uh, how everybody, one by one, fails her. How every all the other siblings get a chance to save her. And for their own, in the moment, perfectly valid reasons, they don't answer the phone. Or they don't say the right things. Uh, and even when she comes the closest to admitting what's wrong, she ends up saying she's worried about her twin, about Luke, which just broke my heart. Um, and so Steve follows up on Luke and never thinks to check on her until it's too late. I mean, Seth, I know you have sort of a background in psychology, so I was just kind of curious what you thought about the way that the show portrayed the sort of psychological issues of these two characters. Well, unfortunately, my background is in the racial bias of police shootings. So I'm not more than like a, a pop psychology expert. Um, but they both seem like they had some degree of PTSD uh, in... And also... Um, Ellie had sleep paralysis, really horrific sleep paralysis mm. episodes, which are a very real thing and work a lot like the way the show describes. Uh, those, I thought, were some of the scariest part of the show. My Yeah, my partner actually gets those, um, the sleep paralysis incidents, and they nailed it, and it was extremely uncomfortable to try to watch sitting next to him as he was freaking out, um, because they, they got it very accurate. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I thought the um, – I guess there were so, – so there were, like, different episodes near the beginning focused on the individual characters. And I don't know if I could sort out which one was which, but I thought that the episode focusing on Nellie and her – yeah, her sleep paralysis and her depression and her marriage um, and climaxing to the, the revelation about the, the bent next lady. Episode five. Yes. I, I thought that was just fan, absolutely fantastic. I was totally riveted. Um, and also, I mean, I, like Seth, I, I don't have a lot of experience with heroin addiction, but I, I thought the episode <laughs> with Luke uh, sort of on the streets and his struggles to, to get clean and um, his experiences on the, um, in rehab and stuff. Uh, I, I also thought that was really well done and felt very convincing, um, at least as far as I, you know, as far as I can tell. Sure. I mean, I think, uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm very interested to hear like Seth continue to talk about this, given that he's never read the novel, but you know, for those of us who, you know, read the novel, you know, I think we all, even the people who have problems, cause I know a lot of horror writers have been arguing about the show, uh, which is, I think, a, you know, a sign of an interesting piece of art, um, that you get people to argue over it. But uh, yeah, that fifth episode is what you know re- people really you know discuss quite a bit. Um, you know the bent neck lady episode, the the Eleanor episode. You know because in the novel, I mean, if you haven't read it by now, sorry, it's going to get spoiled. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, in the novel, the the original novel ends with Eleanor either killing herself or being driven to to suicide by crashing her car as she leaves because she's been banished from Hill House by the by the other investigators because you know she's been doing some stuff that you know that they consider crazy. So, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, it's hard. It, it's a lot of, let's say, triggery stuff. I mean, because they're, you know, they're really playing around with suicide, right? I mean, in this, in this episode, 
you know, depending on what you believe, you know, if you think the house pushed her to it or the house killed her or she actually did kill herself. I mean, either way, that's some really obviously heavy psychological stuff that we're dealing with with Eleanor, you know, which oh, I was just not about, I was going to say hangs over the rest of the series, but <laughs> I do not mean that pun at all <laughs> in any way. Um, yeah. So I don't know where that, that ramble was, was going to, but, um, you know, I know I will forever be interested to see like people who have not read the book, sort of what they think of Eleanor compared to people who, who have read the book. And I mean, people who have read the book. Eleanor is one of their favorite characters in literature. I mean, I, there are so many horror writers that I know, uh, especially women who talk about the impact of Eleanor, uh, on their lives. So yeah, that was, uh, I thought it was a really sort of gutsy and borderline genius episode. Well, I guess while we're here, why don't we just talk about the, the revelation of the bent necked lady? Um, because it, it turns out so, so Eleanor has been haunted throughout her life by visions of this sort of dark silhouette, uh, with, of this woman with a, a neck sort of canted at a weird angle. Uh, who first started appearing to her when she was in, in Hill House and, and continues to appear to her or sort of returns, um, in the. She, she originally referred to her as neck canted at a weird angle lady. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it starts appearing to her again in the, the lead up to her, her suicide. And so then when, um, so then, uh, Eleanor, she returns to Hill House and, um, Oh, it's it's all also good, but so, so so sees her, you know, her her deceased husband and her family members, and is sort of lost in this dream, and ends up, you know, not really, you know, sort of hanging herself, not really realizing what's happening, um, and then she sort of continue as she's fallen to the end of the the noose, she sort of keeps falling and falling and falling through time and appearing to progressively younger versions of herself, uh, and uh, yeah, that was the highlight of the. Of the episode to me, and I, I thought, you know, I, I feel like uh, time travel and horror are sort of not, not you don't always necessarily think of them going together. But I don't know if anyone saw um, Castle Rock, but there was just an amazing episode of Castle Rock that also featured a character sort of unstuck in time and bouncing around in time. I was just like sobbing at the end of that episode. So I'll just note that there is the, there is a lot of sort of fertile ground to be mined by this uh, convergence of, of time travel and horror. Yeah, it was like a really depressing version of the end of Interstellar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, it do, It just feels like such a hopeless loop. Mm. And yeah, I, oh, that episode, everything about that episode is perfect, but just the, 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 the way her husband enters into it, the way Arthur sort of enters into it and the way he's sort of her lifeline briefly. And then, to lose him and then have that so tied up with her own like lifelong haunting and having to see him again. <laughs> it's just, I was screaming at the television. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Leah, that's an, uh, it's a perfect way to put it. How hopeless that, that scene was. I mean, it, it was literally, it took my breath away. It was, mm-hmm. you know, one of the more disturbing and you, you put it perfectly, you know, disturbing scenes that I've seen. I mean, but it also worked. It wasn't like a cheap disturbing. It was, you know, you knew all the implications, uh, not only for that moment, but all the previous moments and what, what's to come in the show. There's all these implications that just sort of spill out, um, you know, in those, what, how long does that falling scene take? Like 20, 25 seconds, if that? Yeah. It's, it's short, but it feels like appropriately, it feels pretty much like right. forever yeah. <laughs> while you're watching it. 
Yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> well, well, but I think one of the things that's so striking about this show is that it's scary. I mean, a lot of it is 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 just really well done scares, but then so much of it is just sad. You know, it, it reminds me a lot of Six Feet Under. You know, not just because the you know it's a, this sort of family that's involved with this funeral home, but also just that same just sort of just sort of sadness about mortality and people failing to make connections with each other or understand each other or, you know, get along with their family members and things. I mean, I I thought it was just really striking the degree to which this show, you know, isn't just about trying to scare you, but it's about just evoking this, this sort of sense of sadness. Uh, that just, is just so powerful to me. One thing I really loved about, um, it's a, a strong, positive, hopeful word for a, a negative feeling. But one thing that really moved me about um, Nell's story, as somebody who's had to, you know, ride the depression train, and uh, like a lot of people, one of the things you notice about being really depressed is uh, you start hearing the, the call of the void. Uh, and it's not like you dramatically, in many cases, you're not sitting there moping, thinking about how you should be dead. But when you see something like a passing car or a knife, you find yourself thinking about how it could kill you. Um, and for me, the bent-neck lady, the way it's something from her future, it's the way her life ends, but it's been haunting her before that, um, reminded me of that, the way that suicide calls to people who are in a bad place and kind of intrudes into their thoughts. Um, and it made me really uh, angry with her psychiatrist, who suggested that she should go back to this house for this horrible thing happened to confront her feelings on her own. Uh, which doesn't strike me as great psychological advice, though I am not myself a practicing clinician. Uh, but again, <laughs> that that metaphor of how she one by one, the connections in her life failed her. She'd lost so much. And she went back to this dark, dark place, this house. Um, she went back to the house and didn't go there specifically with the intent of killing herself, but was in a place where when the impulse struck or in the, um, you know, the metaphor of the show, when the, the house pushed her, there was no one there to stop it. And she was right on the edge and was able to fall because a lot of suicides are impulsive. Um, they are impulsive acts in very bad situations where, Someone's been really depressed, and they're under a ton of strain. And then one day, uh, it's just too much, and without a lot of forethought, they kill themselves. And to me, Ellie's story kind of captured that in a pretty effective way. Definitely. And a less sort of, much less depressing uh, thought. Uh, you mentioned the uh, her, her uh, psychologist. Uh, his name is, I think... It, was she the only one that was talking to uh, a psychologist? I can't remember now. Did Theo see one too? No. Well, she was, was one. Oh, she yeah. was. She was one, right? Never mind. No, it was definitely no. Uh, her psychologist is named Doctor Montague, which is a re you know reference to the book, and the the actor who played her her therapist uh, played Luke in the Robert Wise nineteen sixty one haunting, oh, uh, which I, I did I did not realize till after, and once I saw. You know, once I saw it, I was like, oh, I can't believe I missed that. So anyway, yeah. I just wanted to throw That's... that little more fun sort of nugget out <laughs> in the midst That's, of all um... the talk of suicide. Oh, sorry. That's uh, Russ Tamblin, I think. Right. Is that the yes. guy? That yeah. is the actor's name. Yes. Yeah. Cool. 
Well, right. And so speaking of Theo being a, a therapist, um, let's talk about Theo because we sort of we haven't really gotten to her yet. So, um, so Leah, you said that she was your favorite character in the show, I think. Right. Do you want to just tell us about uh, about her? She is what well, can I I can get into book spoilers, I assume. Like yeah, it's OK. Yeah. Um, in the book, Theodora is uh, Shirley Jackson, I guess, toyed with the idea of making Theodora openly queer in the book and then finally decided not to because she was worried that that would end up becoming like what the book was about according to any publicity about it. Um, and she didn't want it to sort of overshadow the rest of the work. So the fact I was really hoping that assuming that they incorporated that into the show, that they would sort of push that a little further. So the fact that they just made Theodora, um, in addition to being like, basically they made her openly queer and that's just part of her life that it doesn't define her in any way um, throughout the show because it's her career is based in this idea of trying to help children get through their own traumas um, in the way that she felt like she didn't really get enough support getting through hers. Um, her relationships with her family are very kind of prickly and weird depending on which um, sibling she's dealing with. And I really liked that they created this very full character who also, like in her personal life, she'll go out and sort of, from the look of it, at least from what we see of her, she sort of goes out to clubs and she picks up women and brings them back and seemingly has gone through a series of sort of one night stands just because that's what works for her because she likes to sort of keep everybody away from her and keep a personal space um, that is like basically that she doesn't allow the siblings in, she doesn't allow the girlfriends in, um, she just has sort of her own core. And I like that they allowed that for the character because that does riff really well, I think on how she is in the book, but it also, it's not the kind of a woman that you see very often. I don't think in TV or film. Um, so that was really exciting to just sort of watch that and see that they don't make any apologies for that. Um, they don't sort of try to soften her. And then as she does open up a little bit more to her family and to one of the women, that she's sort of connected with. Um, it felt extremely organic that she's very gradually uh, letting them in a little bit more and a little bit more. And then also the way that that ties into her particular uh, sensitivity, like her particular sort of um, maybe supernatural sensitivity that is also very similar to what the character in the book has, um, which is that she uh, through touch, basically she can sort of absorb psychic energy seemingly in kind of a rogue like fashion it seems like <laughs> um which i liked again because it was vague enough that you could sort of read whatever you wanted to into it but it also it was the thing that she could use if she needed to but that it was it had also sort of been foisted on her like it, it seemed like she had to control her power by wearing gloves all the time and by sort of keeping people at bay so it was sort of like something she always had to negotiate, which I really liked that she had her own thing that she had to negotiate in the way that Luke and Nell each had their own thing. Um, I mean, I mean, yeah. her, her power <laughs> seems pretty clearly supernatural to me. I mean, do you think mm -hmm. there's a reading of this show where it's all just I, in her head? I don't. Yeah. I think, it, I think you would have to go with supernatural because I was trying to kind of give it enough. I liked the fact that they sort of walked that line where certain things seemed like they could have been, they could have had other explanations, but I think in her case, it's, it goes a little bit too much into, um, 
pure supernatural talent, <laughs> um, which was neat. But I also, I, I also just like that her solution to it, um, which, I mean, she got it from the advice on, of her mother, but that she stuck with it was to wear these amazing, like, opera gloves. I just thought that that was a very cool mm-hmm. thing, too, of, like, taking this thing that could have potentially sort of really constricted how you live your life, and instead you make it this thing that you sort of, you wear fancy clothes <laughs> to work with it. Um, I really like that as her, as her sort of method. Right. And so she has this conversation with her mom where we get the feeling her mom also has some sort of, mm-hmm. you know, psychic um, sensitivity or something, which seems to make her particularly vulnerable to the malign influence of the house. Uh, she seems to sort of deterior- deteriorate the fastest of anyone in the family. Um, and so the house sort of gets in her head by – and this is where, the interestingly, again, the sort of time travel aspect comes into it. So she starts seeing how adult um, Luke and Nellie are going to come to bad ends. And the house sort of starts preying on her minds with the thought, well, no, if if you stay in the house forever, these dark futures won't come to pass. So, it's, again, it's this interesting sort of time loop, you know, cause or effects preceding cause kind of stuff. Um, Seth, what do you think about that? What do you think of the... Uh, the malign, the house is, uh, Oh, it's great. I mean, this is what I was saying about, uh, (laughs) the house being kind of a more human antagonist than the mirror and Oculus, because the terrible things it shows to, uh, the mother are basically her fears about how her kids are going to turn out. Uh, some of which she makes true and through her actions and trying to avert them. So there's that awesome, like Greek tragedy angle where the house is tempting her with the ability to, uh, avert these fates. But, like, uh, great literary character Anakin Skywalker, in her attempts <laughs> to prevent these things from happening, she, she causes them. Um, I also just wanted to note uh, that Ross Tamblin, who is Nell's psychiatrist, who tells her to go back to Hill House, is also Laura Palmer's therapist in Twin Peaks. So you really just don't want to go to him. If you have any kind of supernatural problem, <laughs> it would be an extremely bad decision for you to do that. Uh, I don't know. Did I did I get it? What you were curious about there? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's. So I, I guess let's just say. So, so the nature of this house seems to be that it is hungry and lonely. This is the way I read it, and it um, sort of offers people an attractive mirage that induces them to die within the house, uh, at which point they're sort of trapped as ghosts forever. And the then um, there's this room in the house that's described as sort of the stomach of the house where it, it digests your soul, uh, which is the red room. And so throughout the series, there's this red door that the characters can't get into, They or so they suppose, and it's locked and they can never find the key to it. Um, but then we find out toward the end of the series that the door opens of its own will and people go into the red room, but then they, they don't realize that they're there. And I just thought that was such an incredible twist. I just love that so much. But so throughout the series, you've, you've seen characters in their own sort of favorite room of the house. And then it turns out they've all been in the same room, the red room. And, um, and there's just, and there's, it's, it's real. I, I didn't, I didn't figure it out, but it's, it's really well set up with clues in retrospect where, a character will say like, "Oh, I was in the toy room, and uh, the house or the um, 
care, caretaker um, woman says, what room, you know, and, and you're always just like, what, what's, what's, what's that about? But then in the end, it all just makes such perfect sense. And it was, I thought it was just brilliant. There are a couple of visual tells for what characters are in the red room. Uh, if you keep an eye on the door and there's a particularly vertical, weirdly shaped window that shows up in all the designs. Mm-hmm. I also really liked how the, the red rooms each kid got foreshadowed the way they were getting fucked up. That was cool. <laughs> so in what way? Uh, Luke's red room is escapist. He gets a treehouse and uh, goes in there right. to get away from everything. And there are no girls allowed. I don't know if that's foreshadowing. Probably not. Um, Theo <laughs> gets uh, like a dance studio where she can dance along to some 80s music videos. Uh, which kind of foreshadows mm-hmm. her. You know, we see her dancing in clubs a lot. Um, and her whole thing of like being a very attractive, charismatic person, but not, it's just for show. She doesn't want you to come close. Uh, and I don't remember, do any of you remember what Red Room, um, Shirley got? Was Steve? No, I was just, th- oh. while you were talking, I was just thinking, well, well Steve had his video game room, oh, right? That's right. Uh, but that had that window that you were talking about. I, I earlier today I can't find the link, but I was just reading that I think Flanagan actually all of those they they repainted the same red room like whatever they had a, as the set of the red room. They would go put in like they would dress up that one same space to make it Luke's, to make it the treehouse, to make it the dancing room, to make it Steve's room. They actually used the same sort of set space room to you know just to even put the I guess the actors in the mind that yeah this is the red room and we're just dressing it up for you. Yeah, I can't remember who had the toy toy room. I think that was Nell. Okay, and the then toy. the mom had a sort of a library, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I can't think what Shirley's was. Yeah, I think somebody just called it a family room. Okay, but I don't remember ever seeing it. All right. Well, so let's. So we talked about how good episode five is, but I also want to talk about how good. Episode six is six. right, which is um it starts off with this long, long tracking shot. I mean it's gotta be ten or fifteen minutes long, uh, where it sort of is going through the so 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 the characters of all the family members have all converged for, for Nellie's funeral. And so they're at the funeral home and then it's sort of like they somehow sometimes they wander around and find themselves find themselves in hallways back in, in Hill House and are sort of seeing visions related to that. Um, and I actually watched a little making of featurette video, and apparently that was all done in one take. It wasn't I, – I was just assuming they had stitched together different takes digitally, but they actually constructed the whole house set so that it led into the um, the funeral home set so that they could do that all in one one shot. So they had to do it over and over and over again, you know, until they finally got it all this whole 15 minute long and nobody messed up, you know, <laughs> but it was just mesmerizing. I thought. No, agreed. F- uh, five and six were my two favorite episodes of the whole show. Uh, you know, which isn't necessarily a slight at some of the other ones, but um, no, I mean, usually, you know, sometimes that can feel like it, it's distracting to the story, but uh you know, just how, how often the camera would turn. I mean, I, I, you, you sort of felt like sort of the chaotic, you sort of felt like how everything was spinning out of control, both what was happening with the characters in 
you know, during the storm within the funeral home and obviously within the storm in the house as well. It was a very, very clever use of uh, long takes. I think because, one, it it was very claustrophobic, which is a weird thing to say about, uh, you know, uninterrupted camera motion, but without any cuts or location changes, you could not escape. You really felt like you were there attending the funeral with all these really fucked up people getting more and more drunk having extremely <laughs> unwise conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, episode six really is like the climax of the whole show. Uh, it's where all the gunpowder goes off. And, you know, the rest after that is kind of ballistics, people ending up where they need to be. Um, but as much as we're in this for the horror, I think, finally getting all those characters in the same place, and of course it's a funeral home, chewing on their problems, um, is the best part of the show. It's what the show is there to do. Yeah, and so up to this point in the show, I thought, I was thinking this is the best haunted house kind of show or movie or anything I've ever seen, I think. And uh, I don't know if someone has, uh, wants to throw out a, a counterexample, I'm, I'm open to it. But that was sort of just <laughs> how I was feeling, um, you know, watching it. But then, like, in this episode, I, there were a couple, like, things where I felt like, ah, eh, that's sort of striking a wrong note for me. And one was uh, they, they they like go into an office and there's like a zombie crawling across the floor toward them and then it's gone. And that was the first time I sort of felt like, ah, oh, this is just like one random dead person coming out of nowhere too many for me. <laughs> um, and I felt like and, and that sort of became an issue for me in the last couple episodes of, um, you know, of just sort of like scare moments that just seem sort of superfluous or sort of um, obligatory. Um but I don't know. How does uh, how about Leo? Did you feel that the show um, sort of uh, declined a little bit after episode six, or did you did you not feel that way? It sort of depended on the episode for me. Where I agree with you about the zombie <laughs> that was sort of coming out of the out from behind the desk because that one was sort of like who who is that? What is the connection? Because I was assuming it was Nell, but why would she do that? Um, it didn't seem in character for her. But then I did have a little bit more of an issue. I think three episodes later, the one, the episode that was more focused on Olivia on the mom, um, that one I felt went, I don't even know how to put it. It just sort of went a little over the top and a little bit too, just too many ghosts by a certain point where it, you're suddenly getting the whole list of all the ghosts that have ever lived in Hill house. And she's meeting them all and interacting with them all. And it felt a little bit too overstuffed. What, what did you, there's this, um, in, in, I think it's in that episode. She gives this long, long, long monologue about rocks, like a, a, mm-hmm. a rain of rocks falling through right. the window, yeah. which was sort of riveting in a way and sort of like, um, exhausting in a way. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, it's well. It's that's from the book because that's actually a f- that if I'm remembering this right, and Paul, correct me if I'm mm-hmm. remembering this wrong, but that is the reason that Doctor Montague reaches out to Eleanor. Um, yes, is because this this rain of rocks fell on the house right after her dad died, and her mom thought that it was the neighbors throwing rocks at them. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. No, uh, the origin. Uh, yeah, that part I'm a little foggy on, but yeah, no. He, she she was there because of the, you know this weird like one off of a rain of stones on her house. 
Um, you know, so as a Jackson geek, I was like, oh, that's how they, they work that in. So, I mean, I was into, I was into that monologue just for the, for the Jacksonness of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, they found a way to bring it in, but then gave it to Olivia rather than to right. Mel. Right. Which, you know, I, I was fine with those. I mean, I was actually very, you know, I, w- I kind of wish I could have seen this without having read the book. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't want that to sound blasphemous because it's one of my favorite books. I mean, I also want the book to exist and be its own thing. And that's like one little bummer I'm having with this whole thing is that now so many more people are probably going to have seen the show potentially than have read the book. Um, you know, at some point, you know, the show is going to be to many people what The Haunting of Hill House is and not the Shirley Jackson novel. Um, anyway, and that has really nothing to do with the show and how it's structured or anything like that. But, um, to go back to your original question, like when things not necessarily went off the rails, but for me, uh, you know, the last episode and a half for me was again, I mean, I think the show is brilliant, but you know, I had my major, my biggest issues were with that last episode and a half, particularly when we went from like evil house, you know, even though like all these evils were sort of very personalized or humanized as, as Seth was talking about, but I felt like the house went from being like a stomach to sort of the interior logic that had been created with these ghosts, at least that I thought there was this interior logic with the ghosts started to sort of break down where, where Nelly became almost like this avenging, like guardian angel kind of figure, as opposed to, you know, what she really is someone who committed suicide and her ghost is now sort of stuck in this limbo, you know, a really horrific thing. Um, so it wasn't totally wild about her becoming a, you know, a guardian angel type, you know, even it was a great, I mean, it scared the hell out of me, but when her two sisters were arguing in the car and she just comes right out, I thought that was technically set up very well. And it was a great little scare, but I don't know. I took it like she was screaming at them to stop arguing, which, um, again, now I think that was like partway. It was that that might even been in the last episode that, or partway through nine. I can't remember. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, um, uh, Shirley and uh, Theodora are yeah. driving to um, to Hill House right. um, because uh, Luke has gone there to burn it down and then Steve and um, the father, Hugh, have gone to try to stop him. So everyone's heading to Hill House. And yeah, I, and on the drive, uh, Shirley and Theodora just like – they're just having a, an argument and uh, Nellie's like zombie face completely out of nowhere like – screams at them uh, sort of between them from the back seat and i mean i thought that was probably the most effective jump scare of all time in terms of making me jump <laughs> yeah i kind of i didn't really like it i mean it, it was it was that was sort of the the apogee of of totally random scares for me where it's just kind of you know and, and it and that's where the the sort of reality really started unraveling where, you know, then, then, then the characters have to talk about what just happens, you know, like uh, Theodora sitting in the grass, kind of like, did you see what that was Nelly? And it, it just, I stopped sort of believing that this is really happening um, at that point a little bit. Uh, Seth, what did you think? Did you feel like the show was sort of losing it a little bit toward the end before let's, let's, let's like um, not get into the last episode, but like leading up to the last, like sort of seven and eight and nine. Did you feel like the show was losing it a yeah, little bit? Uh, I did. I actually didn't even realize the show had nine episodes. Thinking back, I thought it was eight. Um, it's ten. It's ten, what? actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's funny yeah. because um, I rewatched it today in preparation for uh, this huh. conversation, and I stopped it after six. I just kind of wandered off to do other things. Uh, I think because six is so clearly the high point, and after that. I think the show had 
pivoted from the building up mystery intention to paying it off in a way that I didn't find interesting. Um, like, I think we can all agree the Bent Neck Lady was an example of a great pick. Something that's been built up throughout the series, and you learn what it's mm-hmm. about, and uh, the answer is more terrifying than the question. Whereas, right, I, I think I had the same reaction as Dave, where after the funeral, or the, the whole storm, the two stories episode, um, I started to lose a sense of uh, internal logic. Uh, one thing I noticed, we talked about the monologues, but with all due respect to Shirley Jackson. The last few episodes seem to have a lot of capital W writing, like characters <laughs> delivering these very, very uh, mannered, ornate speeches, which is something you see in the first few episodes, uh, where there are a few characters who get monologues, but they always felt natural to me. Uh, later on, they kind of reminded me of late X-Files Chris Carter, where he would open episodes with uh, Mulder or Scully giving the monologue about, you know, how it's important <laughs> to believe in the dead or, you know, we're all connected. Something like that. <laughs> it became a lot. I also lost, uh, I think, because of the randomness of, maybe there's a secret design I don't understand, but the seeming randomness of the supernatural intrusions. I really lost a uh, sense of the house as a coherent menace, and it was just sort of a, a place you go and bad stuff happens. Like, for me, the scariest thing about the house was always that when I was a kid, my parents would, over the summer when I was off school, make me do work on their house. And it was always miserable. And I would spend hours, like, uh, painting the eaves with paint dripping on my face, and I was up on this ladder sobbing, like, 20 feet off the ground. Uh, <laughs> so when the series started and I heard that the hook was, you know, this family with a bunch of kids moves in to refurbish a house, I was expecting those kids to have to do grueling manual labor. And they didn't. At all. Those kids got off really easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, Aside it's funny. from all the ghosts, at least. Right. <laughs> well, I think that's partly, uh, Seth, part of the reason why, and again, totally different medium. So this is no, you know, shade to, uh, you know, Flanagan's TV show because I think it's an amazing achievement. But, uh, I think part of the, a main part of the reason why the haunting of Hill House, I think, is the haunted house story of the 20th century is, you know, the whole book is really about Eleanor. Like, she is the one that's haunted or, or may not be haunted because there is some, you know, potential ambiguity to it. You know, there are other characters there, but really all the sort of the horror and the haunting is really reserved for Eleanor. You know, and by the time you, know, you get to the end of the novel, um, I mean, it, it, it's really powerful. And, you know, obviously it's very difficult, almost impossible to do that for, for 10 episodes where you, you need more than just one character who's necessarily going to be haunted. Um, so I, it's something that, you know, struck me when you were talking about how it's sort of the house lost focus a little bit, because in the novel, the focus of the novel is clearly Eleanor. All right. So I think we're going to have to talk about episode 10. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, episode 10, I have to say, didn't work for me at all. I mean, like overall, I would give this show like a nine out of 10 or something, but episode 10, I would literally give it like a one. Um, and I, I'm not even like angry or upset with it or anything. It's just like, just my emotional reaction was mm-hmm. just, I felt like it, the tension was completely deflated. Uh, it didn't make any sense to me at all. And I really felt like as the credits were rolling, I felt like it would not be out of keeping with the, the, the tone for like the theme song from Cheers to start playing or something. <laughs> and 
it was just so it just struck me as just completely bizarre. Um, and this is like, I mean, I, 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 I think these sorts of like for, for me, one of the things that, that doesn't work for me the most in TV shows is a very whiplash inducing transition from unsettling to consoling. Mm-hmm. Um, and like this is part of the reason why the ending of Lost or the ending of Battlestar Galactica you know, just don't work for me at, at all. Um, and I felt like this is kind of the same thing where, you know, it's, it's, it's been creepy and mysterious this whole time. And suddenly we're supposed to, it sort of becomes heartwarming and it's just way too weird of a trend, tonal shift way too quickly. Um, and, uh, Seth, I think you said, right. You didn't, you didn't like the ending either. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, I feel bad because I'm often the one to defend, um, really, uh, you know, like Prometheus or whatever, uh, but here, I have to take a popular <laughs> stance and say that last episode didn't work at all for me either. For, you know, even shallower reasons than Dave, which is that I wasn't scared anymore. Uh, there were parts of it that were really effective, but I I think when we got to the point of uh, the dad talking to the ghost mom about how she didn't have to be alone anymore, and, you know, kind of hostage exchanging himself for the kids, I didn't. I wasn't scared, and I didn't understand how this tracked to any kind of allegory about family trauma or, you know, coming to terms with the past. Uh, like, if, if something terrible has happened to your family, uh, your dad can't, like, agree 30 years later to die or whatever so that you're all absolved of trauma. Uh, it, it didn't make allegorical sense to me, and it, it didn't make literal tactical sense what was happening and, and why the characters were acting the way they were. I liked how everybody got their own individual hell. That was pretty cool. Um, and I did like Nellie's role in getting them all out of it. But again, there's this perverse emotional logic of like, well, good thing Nellie killed herself because she kind of went ahead <laughs> right. as a scout and now she can save everybody. Uh, which I know absolutely was not intended. It's really a, a redemptive thing for Nellie that she's still there. And mm-hmm. her life is able to have a positive impact on everyone else. Um, I'm sure there are deep threads of subtext I'm missing, but same as Dave, that uh, swerve from unnerving to sentimental, especially with the monologues. I just I couldn't do it with the monologues. One sentimental choice I did appreciate, though, was that they did not end with the implication that they're all still in the red room. Um, I mm. think if you're going to do a happy ending, commit to doing a happy ending. And uh, I think they talked about, Flanagan talked about how he was tempted to put the characteristic Red Room window in the background of some of the epilogues. Yep. I'm glad he didn't do that. Um, I mean, I mean, Leah, in your review, you said mm-hmm. that after thinking about the finale, you came to appreciate it more? Yeah. I keep going back and forth because... I really wanted at least some of them to survive because I was afraid of them just sort of turning it into this very hopeless ending. But I also agree that a lot of it was kind of, it broke the world building that suddenly Hugh was able to swap himself and this house that had been haunted the entire time. And the only ghosts that we've seen have seemed pretty malevolent. Suddenly this is presented as almost like a paradise thing where like Hugh and Olivia and Nell can now be there together and they seem 
stable or okay with it by the, by the time everyone leaves and not like they've been trapped in a haunted house. Um, and then adding into that, the Dudleys, it just, it strained the, the world of the house to such an extent that I wasn't really sure how it worked anymore. So when I wrote the original essay, I was extremely happy that people had made it out alive and I was happy that they'd sort of gone on the happier side rather than being kind of nihilistic. But then the more I thought about it, I'm like, they had to kind of tear down the world building to make all of that work. And I'm not sure the more I think about it, if it works for me. Also, that's the point where they take that original amazing monologue uh, that opens the book and they tweak it in a way that just, um, you, I, someone said blasphemy before, <laughs> but yeah. um, I think that's a good way to put it. Shirley Jackson's going to haunt their asses for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think as much as most of the show works really well, they might deserve it for that. Um, yeah, I was, I was literally like, they're not going to do it. They're not. Oh, oh, they did. Oh they no, did no. It. they did it. But I did like. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like I said, I like, and I didn't like. I liked the weirdness of the Dudleys and I liked the sort of the, what happens to poor Annabelle and then she just pops back up and like, oh, now I'm a ghost, but I'm kind of exactly the same as I've been. And then it, the the fact that he's like running through the woods with his wife to try to get back to the house at the end was very interesting to me. I mean, I, I did think that was an interesting twist that Annabelle yeah. turns out to have actually been a real person the whole time that you just assume she was a ghost. I mean, Ab I, I right. really, Abigail, yeah, yeah. Or, sorry, sorry, Abigail. I didn't really believe that, but it was it was clever at least. Yeah, I just I was I liked Abigail and I kind of wanted more of her, actually, just because she seemed so odd and out of place with the rest of the show. But yeah, I definitely am open to anyone being not okay with this ending. One thing I'm, I'm also glad they did was apparently they shot a lot of material explaining the origins of the ghosts in the house and the backstory of the house and the Hill family, mm. uh, and ultimately decided not to air it. I think that was a really good call. Yeah. Um, all right, I have some thoughts about the ending. <laughs> <laughs> without Without rehashing what you guys, what you all said, because it was... You know, I think the main problem has already been identified that this house, this evil entity, you know, the stomach, you know, sort of became like a stand in for heaven at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, with the caveat, I'm not above, you know, being emotionally manipulated. You know, it was nice to see those characters up, you know, on some level, it was like nice to see those characters that you'd spent so much time with look happy. But, um, and another caveat, as a horror writer, you know, I have plenty of people who don't like the ending of my book, so you can take what I have to say about <laughs> horror, horror endings with a grain of salt. But to, particularly within horror, I mean, cause, I mean, this, this series clearly lives within that realm. Um, a horror doesn't have to have, you know, a nihilistic, uh, depressing, you know, ending. You can have, uh, I won't call it a happy ending, but you can have what I would call maybe an optimistic ending. But for me, for, for that to work, to not feel like sentimentality, that optimism has to be defiance in a way, if that makes sense. Like the ending to The Terminator, where, you know, Linda Hamilton, even though it's not a horror movie, but, you know, Linda Hamilton, you know, is on the side of the road, the, you know, the nuclear storm, the machine storm is coming, 
you know, the, yeah, the world's going to end, but it's still weirdly optimistic or defiantly optimistic because, you know, she's going to go on and fight, you know, even though she knows everything that she knows. Um, I don't know. How, how do you, you know, how do you make like this weirdly optimistic ending is you, you have to honor, you have to honor the experience and honor the, the tough decisions that your characters that you put through the grinder, you have to honor those decisions and, and, um, experiences that they had. And you honor it by showing how that they've been changed by what they just went through. And to me, that's sort of like, you know, the, the, the misquoting of Jackson at the end and all you see is them as happy at the table at the end. I mean, the lasting images is, oh, they're living happily ever after. And I, you know, whether or not it's a horror story, there is no such thing as happily ever after. <laughs> um, I wish there was more of, cause there's just a glimpse of it. Like after, um, you know, like the last time you see Olivia in the house and she's there hugging, I think Hugh, you see her like so, with this look on her face that is actually very, uh, you know, you can tell she's like angry and unhappy and then the, the red door starts closing. Right. I mean, I wish there was a little bit more of that or maybe, you know, show, yeah, they, they had this party at Luke's house, but show something like all isn't well, they're still being haunted, right? Their sister killed herself. You know, their dad, you know, died in the house along with their mom. They They would still be messed up people. So I think they could have, you know, somehow, you know, just show that, yeah, these people are still going to be fucked up. You know, maybe they, they, de they decide to go on. They decide to live. Luke decides to be clean, but you know, their troubles aren't over. It's not like happily ever after, you know, we walk together. No, there's no walking together in Hill House. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry. There was my rant. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the first things I, I'm curious to know about a horror story is whether it is human-centric or not. And by that I mean that in some stories, feelings and human attachment and sentiment really matter. And in others, like Lovecraft, uh, kind of the point of the story is that humans are irrelevant. And that even if uh, something is preying on people, like the house, uh, it doesn't really care about them. They're just food. Um, and for a lot of this series, I felt the house was a very hostile alien force. People kind of got stuck in it right. in this very septic way, where they were degrading and becoming part of the house, and you were seeing these awful remnants. And to see at the end that it's really more of this fish tank, where, you know, ghosts hang out and, and chill, uh, altered how I saw the cosmology. It, it made it a story about people, which it is, Totally. This is a very human story. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had this idea of the house as something like depression or something nihilistic, which doesn't give a shit about your family sure. or, or anything about you. No, I agree. I mean, I think they could have stuck with the house as a metaphor for grief, sort of the all sort of encompassing, all consuming grief. And, you know, you move past it eventually, you live with it, but, you know, you're, you're scarred afterwards. So, you know, just to maybe show that somehow. Um, you know, I, there's so many like cool secret stuff about, or secret to me anyway, about the show. Like I saw somewhere that apparently, uh, the five kids are the stages of grief. Um, and actually in the posters, they're set up, you know, as the stages of grief pass and each, each of the children represent one of the stages of grief. Um, this was posted on Buzzfeed or somewhere. And I saw Mike Flanagan himself tweet is like, ah, oh, yeah, very, you got it. You know, you know, they were clearly thinking about, I mean, I think it was fairly obvious that they're, they were thinking about grief, but, you know, so I just w wish they went a step further. Again, okay. It's okay to have a optimistic ending, but 
I feel like you need to show them, you need to show that they're, you know, that they've been changed, but not, and not just changed because they're happy, but changed, you know, because they've barely survived this experience. I, yeah, I agree with that. I think they, they also sort of drop the thread that Steven is now responsible for the house because Hugh basically passes it on to him and says, since you're the oldest and, and, I guess like my heir or the closest heir, you are going to have to now maintain this house, keep everybody else out of it, but you also have to make sure that it stays standing so that we can all stay living here as ghosts. And they just leave that there and then cut to the montage of, of more optimism. Um, and to me that kind of lent a little like last stab of horror of the idea that Steven now has to, manage this place and figure out how to keep it in the family without ever telling anybody it's secret. And is Mr. Dudley going to try to die there too? Like, are the kids going to each go back as they get older? Like it just, it sort of opened up this, this whole thread in my mind that the, the show didn't really deal with. Okay. This, this is not the most important question of all time, but (laughs) This is driving. This was driving me crazy. Okay, so it's established that if they don't, they're 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 refurbishing this house and then they're going to sell it. And he's mm-hmm. like, "Oh man, if no one buys this house, like we're bankrupt, we're done for." And then he keeps it for like thirty years mm-hmm. without selling it. And like, are they paying taxes on it? Like, is he like a billionaire? Like, <laughs> how do they keep this house for thirty years without, like, uh, you know, anybody paying rent on it or anything like that? Like yeah. I said, not the most important question, but it's just like, what? I don't know. That's- I can't, I can't yeah. say that occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's another little piece of the world building. They specifically say that it'll, that it'll ruin them. But then somehow it's still there. He's living in like Florida at the beginning. He's nowhere near the house. Hugh is. And then somehow they just still have it this whole time. And I guess Steve's rich now because of his you know writing career. But... yeah uh yeah but there's no implication that i mean i don't know how rich steve is but is there any there's never any implication that he's been paying to keep the house in the family right or is there i don't know i don't think so Uh, i think didn't you say his dad did take some money from the book but again i I mean i Mm -hmm. can't imagine it would be that much or you know just to, to keep that obviously huge expensive house but again this isn't something i necessarily uh, considered. So do you guys want to hear my pitch for season two? It's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. So yes. all's well until uh, Steve receives a court summons or something, like a, a letter uh, that uh, this like shadowy firm is trying to buy the house uh, for a very important reason. They really want it. And as the family investigates this, they discover that the shadowy firm are already owners of this property called the Overlook Hotel. And they go to the Overlook <laughs> Hotel to try to figure out what's going on and come up with this plot where the house, um, the Hill House and the Overlook Hotel are going to mate and and have offspring. <laughs> what do you guys think? I, I would watch that. Huh. I would watch every episode huh. of that. <laughs> nice. Interesting. It does sound like they're talking. I mean, I, I've seen people talking like, you know, they want a second season, like, which seems a little bizarre to me. 
Like, uh, I mean, it's clearly this story's been told. You know, Flanagan has come out and said, yeah, if something were to happen, he would not, he would definitely not reuse the same characters. I would like to publicly say, I think Flanagan should buy the rights to House of Leaves and have a second season be, you know, a House of Leaves season. I don't know if either, if any of you has read that novel or not, but to me, that's sort of the other sort of, uh, favorite. And it's, you know, that was at the turn of the 20th century. It was published in like 2001, I believe. Haunted House novel? I, I know it, but I haven't read it. Ah, okay. It's a house that expands in size and there's all sorts of, yeah, just sort of weirdly. Um, and there's four stories that are interconnected. Um, it's way too convoluted of a novel to ever be done as a film. It's only shot would be like, I think in a 10 episode, uh, format like this. Well, let me, I don't know if any of you guys have seen, um, Channel Zero. But I really liked season two of Channel Zero. I feel like I, I don't know anyone who's watched it except for me and people who only <laughs> watched it because I told them to. But I thought it did a really good job of like a haunted house where the hauntedness of it is sufficiently ambiguous and specific where you can understand why certain people would want to go in there and stay in there. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that's what this show needed at the end a lot more of was, you know, to have set up the rules in such a way that it would make sense why you would want to stay in this house. And it wouldn't just come out of, it wouldn't just sort of come mm-hmm. out of left field at the end. I haven't seen the, the second season. Sorry. So I can't comment, but yeah, I like your idea. <laughs> I, yeah, I, mean, I agree that that's what this needed. Cause I don't have any problem with what happens at the end on a plot level. For me, it's it's the tone, you know, like if the it, the tone either needs to get it needs to like get to console, it needs to get from creepy to consoling over the course of like three episodes or it needs to go from like creepy to slightly less creepy uh, in one episode. But it can't go from like like 100 percent creepy to like 100 percent not creepy in like 30 minutes. That just doesn't work. Can't do it in 42 minutes. Oh, you already, <laughs> you already said like three episodes. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. So we're pretty much out of time. Um, I'll just, I'll just, let's, I'm just looking at my notes here. Is there anything else I want to mention? I mean, I really liked, like, like for, for me, so much of what made the show effective was the quiet moments. And one of those is that it's been established that when they lived in the house, that the mom used to like flash the porch light or whatever to tell them it's time to come home. And just when you see the house, like, flashing the porch light at, I think it was Luke, I forget. Maybe Mm -hmm. it was Nelly. Uh, I just, like, that was so, like, it just sent a shiver down my spine. And just, like, something as simple as that uh, can be just so effective. No, I I mean, the the whole experience, honestly, was absolutely wonderful. And I think that's why my reaction toward the end is maybe even, like, overstated, just because of how much I enjoyed, you know, almost all of the show. Um, you know, I think it's an amazing achievement. I think people are going to be talking about it for years. Um, you know, on social media, I'm, I'm, you know, sort of connected with so many people who either read horror or write horror. And that's all people have been talking about for like a week or two straight uh, on sort of like any all possible angles and sides of, of, uh, of the fence of, you know, what they think about the show. Yeah. This yeah no, was... I... <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, I would just, like, give my strongest possible recommendation for the first six episodes. And then, like, if you want to keep watching it after that, you can. But, you know, you have to watch. If you if you have any interest in haunted house stories or anything like that at all, you got to watch the first six episodes of this. 
Uh, sorry, Leah, what, Leah, final thought? Oh, yeah, I was just going to agree that I feel like until, for me at least, I think 9 and 10, this the show was just the, one of the most gripping things I've seen all year. Um, and I just, I think that anybody that loves a haunted house story owes it to themselves to watch this if they haven't yet. And then, and also read the book, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, do both. Yes. <laughs> all right, Seth, final thought. It was really good. I liked it a lot. I, I've been looking for something to binge for a long time without any luck. And the series really came out of nowhere. Really impressed me. Uh, I share the recommendation for watching the first six episodes, but you know what? I don't want to give people the impression in advance that they're not going to like the last four. Um, it's just the show does amazing work in the first six and then things wrap up. And you might like the ending, you might not. But by that point, you're really going to care about the people of the show. Absolutely. I mean, and the direction is consistent throughout, and the performances, I think, are consistent uh, throughout as well. Yeah, absolutely. Check it out. It's good. It's also a clear prequel to Event Horizon. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, I think that's a good note to end on. (laughs) So we've been speaking with Paul Tremblay, Leah Schnellbach, and Seth Dickinson. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, David. I had a blast. Thank you so much. It was so much fun to talk about this uh, show again. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Paul Tremblay, Leah Schnellbach, and Seth Dickinson for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Patrick Berry and Kay Vale Nagel, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Casper for sponsoring today's show. Remember that you can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash galaxy and using the promo code galaxy at checkout. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.